Well, we are picking up where we left off back in November. Uh, it feels like a long time ago, but we're picking back up where we left off in November with our series on discipleship based on John 13 through 17. And this section as a whole, the, those four chapters, are known as Jesus's farewell address uh, to his disciples. It's his last bit of teaching, in particular uh, in the face of his coming death and resurrection, uh, but also in light of the coming disappointment and the suffering and persecution that his disciples would endure after his ascension into heaven. And throughout this, this block of teaching, Jesus has assured them multiple times that though he was returning to the Father, he would not be absent from them, though it would appear that way to them. And of course, it can look and feel that way to us too. No, with his ascension to heaven, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would be poured out, uniting God to his people. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that God would make his home in and with his people. That is, he would temple with them. In fact, the entire Old Testament looks forward to what Jesus promised was getting ready to happen. So though Jesus is, is absent from our sight, he is closer to us. He is closer to us through the Spirit than we typically realize. In fact, Jesus' claim is that he is in us and we are in him. Well, this week we begin the final chapter of, of this block of teaching by looking at the first five verses of what is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. Now, admittedly, if you, this chapter is awesome. It is incredible, and it's woven it's like a beautifully woven tapestry. Uh, so isolating five verses at a time uh, is, is like taking a magnifying glass to it when really we should be standing back and, and admiring the whole thing in, in one goal. Obviously, we're not going to do that. So let me encourage you over this week and the, the weeks to come, take the time to read this prayer all in one go. In fact, what I, I've been doing is starting with this prayer and going all the way through the end of the book of John. It takes about 20 minutes tops for you to do that. So let me encourage you just so you can get the whole feel of what Jesus prays and then the events uh, after that and, and how all of those things are related. Well, even so, we're going to be in chapter 17 looking at the first five verses only. Let me pray for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. that The son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Well, this is the word of our God. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm going to be so bold as to pray the same thing that Jesus prayed, that you would be glorified in what we do now. Lord, may you be glorified. May we see you for how good you are, how full of loving kindness you are how faithful you are, how kind and patient and good you are. We pray all of this through Jesus and the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, this chapter is a prayer. 
and it shows how Jesus personally approached your kingdom come, your will be done in his own prayer life. And of course, this prayer is is obviously instructive for us. I mean, we're going to be spending 30 or so minutes working through just five verses of it, but it's also a window into Jesus's heart and what he loves and what he desires. I mean, just consider this is one of his final prayers before his betrayal and arrest. Now, unlike the other three gospels, John doesn't give us an account of Jesus's agonizing prayers uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays things like, if you would If you would, Lord, take this cup from me. But if not, may your will uh, be done. John alone gives us this prayer, the content of this prayer. But even so, when you compare it, this prayer against those agonizing prayers in Gethsemane, uh, you get the same thing, essentially, the same desire. Jesus so loves God the Father that he chooses him over all things, even to the point of judgment and death. Now think back to Isaiah 11 from two weeks ago. It feels like a long time ago since I preached on that passage. But if you think back to Isaiah 11 in that that passage about the coming Messiah, ask the question, you know, what does the Messiah love? What does he savor? What does he delight in? The answer is the same. God the Father. As the true human, the Messiah seeks God's kingdom first, and loves God's ways. So everything Jesus loves, he in turn teaches us to love too. This is why, for example, our standard or model for how to live is never another sinful human. Of course, we can be taught by sinful humans. Of course we can. But our model, our standard is always, always Jesus himself. And this is true in at least two regards. So when we compare ourselves, for example, morally against another sinful human, we can always find things to praise about ourselves. It's why we naturally do it. It's why for our confession of sin this morning, we use Luke chapter six. In in Jesus's words, he said, now let me show you what the standard for, for sin and evil actually is. If we compare ourselves against other people, we could come across feeling pretty good about ourselves. Our moral failures come uh, less to the forefront. Our our sinful hearts get kind of puffed up and thinking, ah, I'm doing pretty well. You know, at the same time, just as, you know, comparing ourselves against others as opposed to Jesus, and when you compare yourself against Jesus, it's a very different story. Comparing ourselves against other people can fool us into believing, you know, in our own righteousness and comparing can just as easily be the thief of our of our joy in Christ. So when we compare our lives against someone else's, we can believe the lie that maybe I know he claims this, but maybe God doesn't love us. At least not like how we think we should be loved. If only I had been made differently. If only my my face was better or my body a different shape or my mind a little sharper or my personality more inviting or whatever it is we're being told will make us happy and complete us as a person by whatever company that is trying to profit off of our insecurities. What is so often missed is that God created us and he delights in us. Now think about that. God created 
you. You. And he delights in you. The world, of course, sees people very differently and doesn't hesitate to tell you that you don't measure up to whatever fickled standard that is being peddled today. So we measure our joy by what the world tells us it should be instead of measuring it by what God says about us. Just like we often measure our sinfulness against other sinful people and can come across feeling pretty good, once we start measuring our joy against other people, we can start feeling pretty bad. The model is always Jesus. Do I love what he loves? Do do I savor what he savors? Do I view God like he does? Do I view people like he does? Can I see? Can I actually see that he truly loves me? It's why, for example, Paul teaches that the model husbands are to follow for loving their wives is rooted not in the world, not in examples in in our culture, but in how Jesus loved the church. That's it. In turn, the the model wives are to follow for loving their husbands is rooted in how Jesus submitted his life unto the Father. Again, that's it. At the root of marriage is loving what Jesus loves. Now, what I find telling is that Jesus, of course, expresses his love through his actions, but the often overlooked way he expresses his love is by taking the time to pray. Prayer is an act of worship. It's setting your heart on what you think matters most, and Jesus was devoted to prayer. Jesus doesn't merely tell us to pray as if it's a good thing or teach us that it's foundation to a better life. No, he gives us the shape of how to pray and thus why prayer is important by consistently seeking God the Father in his will. You know, in a certain sense, everybody prays. And in a certain sense, it's easy to pray. Pray without giving much thought to what I'm praying at all. In fact, if I'm being honest, I can stand up in front of people and pray pretty elaborate prayers and not feel a thing. And as of late, you know, I've caught myself praying the the same sorts of things over and over again at meals or for my family or, or what have you, almost like how people just kind of mindlessly mumble through the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, it's quite, you know, another thing to not just mindlessly go through praying, it's quite another thing to take the time. And it really doesn't even have to be overly long to really seek God the Father and pray for his will to be done in your life and the life of the world. It does not even have to be complicated. Again, go to those prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are incredibly simple. And they are a heart directed squarely on God. You know, the problem, as, as I so often face it, and I, I bet I'm not alone in this, is, is like what Dallas Willard once said. He said, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life. And we should also add to that, I think, distraction, busyness, and the often unstated belief that things like prayers don't do very much. All those things are the great enemies of our worship with our God in prayer. And what's so often misunderstood is that the purpose of these wonderful God-given spiritual disciplines, things like prayer, reading and listening to scripture, corporate worship, all that stuff, it's not to make us more precious to God. 
That's how they're often approached. I better do this or else. No, he already delights in us. No, it's, this is the full reason, but it's partly the reason. It's to make him more precious to us. So you don't have a quiet time so God will love you. You don't give thanks before a meal to ensure that God will continue to provide for your needs. Now you do these things so that you can grow to love him in return. Jesus treasures God the Father. That's why he prayed. It's at the center of what he does. He delights in his Father and in turn he delights in his people, and everything about chapter 17, as we're going to see over the coming month, reflects this. So, Jesus begins his prayer by asking for God to glorify him so that he might glorify the Father. Well, glorify is a very important uh, verb in this section, and really throughout the entire chapter. Now, the word glory in, in Hebrew is related to the word for heavy. It's related to the word for heavy. So if you've ever heard someone say, man, that's really heavy. Yes, that's, you're, you're getting at it, right? So to glorify something is to give it its due weight. And of course, for God, he is a heavy weight, right? It's, it's to, to honor him and treat him with the deepest respect and seriousness. So Jesus isn't asking for glory like what we typically think of as, as glory. You know, people looking for glory are looking to honor themselves or, or be the center of attention. And really they're, they're looking to be worshiped or honored or adored. And, and we're rightly turned off by that when we see it. But even though Jesus is worthy of all glory and rightly deserves our worship and adoration, even in this moment, he's not pursuing himself. He's not asking for confetti, a trophy and a parade. No, he's asking that his death would glorify his father and would bring about the redemption of the world. And what's so staggering to me is that it's through the cross, through that wretched, evil cross, that Jesus desires to glorify his father and in turn be glorified by him. So compare this against, for example, Julius Caesar, who lived in broadly the same time period as Jesus. I was re recently listening to, to a Roman historian who described Caesar as one of the world's greatest men. One of the world's greatest men. Caesar utterly conquered his foreign enemies and his domestic ones too, claiming to have killed at least a million people in battle. He was a, a military genius. He was exorbitantly wealthy. He was politically adept, really a political genius in many ways. Statues were made of him. Huge parades were thrown in his honor. After his death, he was worshiped as a god, legally sanctioned by the Roman Senate. He was the turning point in changing Rome from a republic to an empire and is without a doubt one of the most important figures of Western culture, if not world history. Julius Caesar is how the world defines greatness. Caesar put people on crosses. He didn't die on them. Jesus is gentle and lowly. He's humble. He does not seek glory for himself. He's content to wait for God to glorify him. So he, for example, he does not walk into dinner parties and seek out the prettiest people 
or the most influential people or the people who can do things for him. No, he seeks out the lowest place. He's a friend to those who are friendless. He's kind to the outcasts and the nobodies. He is the antithesis of what the world thinks of as a so-called great man, and he's no Caesar. He doesn't want to be. The very next phrase brings out the difference between Jesus and every other so-called great man. He says, since you have given him, that is Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given life. Now, this is a classic text for those who hold to predestination. Even so, focus on the second important verb, I think, of the passage that gets repeated here a lot. It's the word give. It's give. God the Father gave Jesus authority over all flesh. That is, Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth. He did not have to take it for himself. He didn't have to kill millions of people to get it. No, he was given authority, not over a limited group, but over all people. And for what purpose? To give eternal life to everyone God had given life. During our Advent series on the Messiah text of Isaiah, chapter 2, 7, 9, 11, I actually brought up politics a lot. And I did this because politics is baked into what, into who the Messiah is and what he does. In fact, politics is baked into what it is to be a human made in God's image as well. But when I say politics, I, I don't mean the narrow partisan secular ideology that has become a substitute religion for people on both the right and the left. No, I have in view how humans use the power that has been given to them by God. All humans have been given some measure of power and authority by God, some more than others, right? So presidents, for example, example, typically have more power than, say, parents, but still, both parents and presidents do have some measure of power and authority. The question is not whether power is bad or not. Modern people assume all power is bad unless they or someone they agree with has it. Then it's okay not only to have power, but to use it to get what you want. No, the issue is whether you will use your power and authority for selfish gain or for the common good. It's the difference between being a tyrant or loving your neighbor. It's the difference between Caesar and Jesus. Caesar, like all those in authority, was given power by God, though in his own mind, he took power for himself and in turn used it for his own selfish ends. Jesus has all power and authority and he uses it for the life of the world. There's the difference. It's why Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. And what he means is not that his kingdom is otherworldly and has no bearing on this world. No, it means he's no tyrant. And what he's establishing does not look like what the Caesars of this world have to offer. The one through whom and for whom all things were made used his power and authority to give his life for the ransom of many so that humanity might have life. Verse three says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So if you want the simple one verse summary of the purpose of salvation, 
Here it is. Here it is. It's to know God the Father through his son, Jesus. That's it. That's it. So notice, eternal life is not a place. It's not a feeling. It's not utopia. Eternal life is to know the God who made the heavens and the earth, the one who made us through his son, Jesus, who alone makes him known. It's why, for example, Jesus says to to one of the men crucified next to him, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, we tend to read that phrase with an emphasis on paradise, right? As in today, you'll get to go to a better place. In fact, we routinely say that about people who've died. Well, they've gone on to be in a better place. I think the real emphasis is not on paradise, but rather with me. It's with me. Jesus is saying, you'll get to be with me, right? So even so, you know, paradise is there. It's the word for Eden, believe it or not. And Eden is where God dwelled with humanity. So what makes paradise paradise, again, is not the place. It's God himself. And without God, it can only ever be hell. So the goal of salvation is life together with God, full stop. This is why Jesus in the previous three chapters emphasizes just how important the pouring out of the Spirit is. The gift of the Spirit is communion. That is life with God right now. It means that if you belong to Jesus, you have eternal life now. It's not something you're waiting for. You have it now, and it cannot be taken from you. You know, so many things can be taken from you. Your body, your wealth, your family, but not life with God. He's forever. This past week, as I was you know, dealing with fever and, and body aches from COVID, I, I decided to play that, that mental game of, what if I don't get better? What if this is what life winds up feeling like? What if I have long COVID? What if I have all kinds of side effects from this? You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty able-bodied guy, And so it's easy to think those thoughts as merely a hypothetical exercise because I just trust that I I would get better. But of course, you know, the reality is if if I'm given a long life, most of the things I take for granted now will be slowly or maybe not so slowly stripped from me. So to be sure, we are waiting for and looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies, but even such a wonderful gift as resurrection is, and it is incredible. It is for the purpose of life together with God. It's not an end in itself. It's why your only comfort in in life and in death, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, is that you are not your own, but belong both body and in soul, both in life and in death, to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you are not your own. That is the gospel. You are not your own. God has you, both in life and in death. And of course, even as this should be incredibly comforting to us, once we walk out those doors, it's difficult to believe that we actually are not on our own. It's very difficult to believe that. As we've said throughout the last several months, our our culture is structured in such a way that we are pushed more and more every day. You are your own. You are your own. It's one of the central fundamental beliefs of American culture that everyone is an isolated, 
autonomous individual, undefined by history, family, gender, race, or anything else. No, it's up to you to create your own identity, your own story, your own style, your own gender, to make something of yourself because it's on you to validate yourself, to justify yourself, to be true to yourself. It's why statements like, you are enough, you are enough, would be really eye-rollingly funny if they weren't so tragically self-defeatist because so many people believe it. You know, what that, that phrase means is that only you can define you, which means, again, you are right back in the self-justification game and it never ends. You know, as Alan Noble points out, modern people treat identity as if it's a liquid, right? So as if you can pour your identity, right, into different cups until you find the cup you like most. So, you know, it's one thing to ask a kid, you know, what kind of job she would like to do when she grows up. It's a very different question to ask, who do you want to be when you grow up? That's a question of self-creation. It's a question of self-creation, and it's been asked at least since I was a kid in the 1970s. You know, and even as, as Christians, you've heard, you know, don't find your identity in your work. Or, your, or in your children, or in your hobbies, or in sex, or sport, whatever. No, instead, find your identity in Christ. And, and I am sure, I am sure I am guilty of having said that. The problem with saying, find your identity in Christ, is that it's just a Christianized version of saying, discover who you really are. Pour yourself into this cup, which in turn makes Christianity out to be just one more cup among many. And of course, people can take on Christian morals or attend worship or even develop a Christian worldview, but that's not the same thing as an identity. It's why people can try out Christianity, maybe even being raised in it, and just as easily leave it. You know, Christianity was just one more cup, and it didn't stick. Well, here's what Rowan Williams wrote about identity, and it's very different. It's very different from how most people think about it. He writes, you have an identity, not because you have invented one or because you have a, a little hard core of selfhood that is unchanged, but because you have a witness of who you are, what you don't understand or see, the bits of yourself you can't pull together in a convincing story are held together in a single gaze of love. You don't have to work out and finalize who you are and have been. You don't have to settle the absolute truth of your history or story. In the eyes of the presence that never goes away, all that you have been and are is still present and real. It is held together in that unifying gaze. So what gives you your identity is not what you can make of yourself or the, or the story you create about yourself. Now think about it. Everyone tells a story about themselves. You can think about your childhood. You can think about events. Everyone tells a story about themselves. Sometimes it's true. Sometimes it's not. You know, it's not you self-consciously choosing to act more like a Christian even. No, it's God seeing you. In every last thing about you, he knows your story better than you do, and he says, 
my beloved. You see, apart from God, all a person can do is look to something else to give them meaning. Thus, all the talk about, you know, not making work or sports or whatever your identity. But with God, he looks on you and he defines who you are. He gives meaning to your story, your life, your body, and of course, your identity. That's why for Christians, as opposed to American culture at large, we are in Christ, not in me. Do you hear the difference? American culture is an in me culture. Christians are in Christ. We do not create ourselves. We are created. We are not our own. We belong to another. That's why one of the most important blessings in the Bible is the great blessing God commanded Aaron the high priest to give to the people of God. Here's what he said. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The truest blessing is to be known by this God, to be seen by him full in the face and loved by him. Jesus calls this in our chapter, eternal life. You can't take it for yourself. It is freely given to you. And what's so interesting is that even though Jesus is God, he did not seek to validate himself but lived in such a way that he looked to God the Father to validate him. Even Jesus did not live as an autonomous individual. No, he did not belong to himself at all. He was in the Father too. So what you see in Jesus is is what has been given to you. Now, in verse four, Jesus says that he glorified his Father by doing what God called him to do. Now, again, the Messiah savors. He delights in doing God's will. He wants to glorify God. And by the way, this is how we glorify God too, by loving him and keeping his commandments. But Jesus goes a step farther, and this is really interesting. He asked to be glorified in God's presence with the glory that he had before the world existed. And this is exactly what Paul is after in Philippians 2. Paul writes this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, "'which is yours in Christ Jesus,' That is, he's setting up the Philippians to say, who is your model for life? It is Jesus. Have the mind of Christ in you. Why? This is what he did. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's exactly what Jesus prayed for. So in other words, Jesus let go of his magnificent glory in order to become like us in every way except without sin. In turn, glorifying his God by humbling himself to death on a cross. And in verse 5, he asked for God to glorify him again with what he willingly gave up. So it's important to notice that he's not trying to glorify himself. 
He's not. Though he has all power and authority and could easily do it, he's not doing that. He's asking and waiting on God to glorify him. And this is the crucial distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. It's the difference between Jesus and Caesar, right? And it's, it's all over how he taught us to live. In the kingdom of man, we try to glorify ourselves, typically by stealing glory from God and other people. In the kingdom of God, we seek to glorify God and neighbor, and in turn, we wait upon God to raise us up. Jesus, by not seeking to glorify himself like a Caesar, shows that he does not have an identity rooted in himself. No, even though he's God and needs for nothing, he's rooted in his father. He is the true human. He is exactly what Adam should have been and was not. He looks to his father to validate and to defend him. He pursues his father's glory and waits for his father to glorify him. He looks for his father's love and he loves his father. So let's, let's just put this in slightly different terms. I can almost always tell when a kid, male or female, is either lacking a father or is lacking real, true affection from a father. Now, you you don't need psych data to prove this, so there's plenty of data on this. The kids raised in homes with loving fathers, and and by that I don't mean, you know, permissive, wishy-washy, anything-goes kind of dads. I, I mean fathers who regularly tell their children they love them, are proud of them, and actually delight in them. Those kids are almost always well adjusted, secure, and confident. There, of course, I know, anecdotal evidence for all different kinds of things. I get this. We're talking in general here. In general, they tend not to go looking for love in all the wrong places because they have love at home. My point is that you cannot, you cannot define yourself. You cannot validate yourself. You cannot actualize yourself. You cannot self-love. What a farce. You cannot self Love. You cannot create your own story without being crushed under the weight of it all. No, you need others who will, like Aaron's blessing, cause their face to shine on you. But more than the love of, of a parent, as critical as that is, and by the way, parents, it's never too late to start saying and doing these things for your kids. What you need to hear is that God, the one who created you and delights in you, has turned to you full in the face and has affirmed to you that he loves you. And he has done this in his son, Jesus the Christ. But again, we so easily forget this. We so easily fall back into defining ourselves. And so I'm I'm convinced that the best thing I can do for us as a pastor, is to remind us as often as I can that God has given us eternal life now. You have it now. That it's found in Jesus Christ who knows us and loves us. And because of that, we are not our own. I promise you're not. You are beloved by God. He delights in you. He created you for himself and has set you apart for himself. He is the one who defines you, and he's not, this is key, he is not changing his mind about you. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. All the gods of this world change their minds. They are fickle. They play on our insecurities, and they want to destroy. There is no prince who can provide for us, who can protect us, who can give so much as our prince Jesus has given for us. Lord, I know how hard it is, even before we are walking out of these doors, to forget to be taken in by lies. I know I am taken in by them. So I pray for us that you would continue to walk with us and to teach us and to show us just how much you love us, how much you delight in us. Because, Lord, I know the key to holiness, the key to growth, the key to all the things that Christians know they should want, it's in that, that you are good and that you love us. So I pray all of this in the good and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.